Well, hey, everybody, great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, really from wherever you happen to be, we're honored to have you along for the ride. And today, we get to continue a series called Six Things You Should Know About the Bible. Uh, It's based on six things that I've picked up while teaching the Bible for almost two decades now. Uh, And they're things that I'm convinced can actually help you to read the Bible as it was intended to be read. And that, as it turns out, is a really big deal. I mean, as we've said in this series, uh, the Bible has been and continues to be the most influential printed document of all time. It's shaped religious belief and religious practice for millions of people all over the world for thousands of years. But, but here's the thing. This is sort of the heart behind this series. I don't actually think that it is what many people think that it is. And, and here's why I say that. Um, though the Bible looks like a book, it doesn't read like a book because it isn't really a book. And if you've ever tried to read it, you, you know what I'm talking about. And if you say, well, if it's not really a book, what is it? I would say, well, it's more like a collection or a small library of, of 66 books written over 1,500 years by around 40 different authors. Authors who, as we've said, are real people living in real places at real times. And so consequently, and, and really not surprisingly, their writings were profoundly influenced by the social and political and cultural contexts in which they lived. And as it turns out, keeping that in mind will help you approach the Bible with the proper expectations. Okay, so now with our time together this weekend, what I want to do is answer another one of those really great questions uh, that flows out of our conversation so far in this series. But obviously, before we go to the question, I need to once again take a few moments to review where we've been for the benefit of those of you who are joining us for the first time today. So, uh, so far in this series, we've been exploring how the Bible is organized around something called covenants. And we've said that in the ancient world, a covenant was, was simply an agreement that defined the terms of a relationship. Uh, and we've also said that the authors of the Bible recorded a few different covenants that at times defined the terms of relationship between a specific group of people and God. And moreover, and, and this is pretty cool, I've pointed out that most of us are already very familiar with the two most famous covenants in the Bible, right? They're called the Old Covenant or the Old Testament and the New Covenant or the New Testament. And and the Old Testament, of course, outlined the terms of relationship between God and the people of ancient Israel for almost 1,500 years leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And then the New Testament, the New Covenant, outlines the terms of relationship between God and really the whole world following the crucifixion of Jesus. And then finally, one more thing in this series, uh, we've observed that when we're reading the Bible, it's absolutely imperative to identify the covenant under which the section you're we- reading was written, because if you don't, it can be incredibly confusing. Uh, we, we've said it this way, though all of the Bible was written for you, not all of the Bible was written to you or even addressed to you originally. And, and practically this means that God's promises and commands to ancient Israel, we find in the Old Testament, are not the same as his commands and promises to people like you and me in the New Testament. Oh, okay, so that brings me to the question that one of you asked after last week's talk. And somewhat providentially, it's a question that leads to another one of those things that you really should know if you're going to read the Bible as it was intended to be read. So the question goes like this. <clears throat> what about the Ten Commandments? Right? And you feel like, hmm, yeah, right? Uh, because if you grew up in church like I did, then the Ten Commandments were kind of like front and center for much of your upbringing, right? Uh, and they played a significant role in your understanding of what it meant 
to live a life that honored God. And years ago, I actually even read about this Christian businessman in Texas who was so excited about the Ten Commandments, he put like a million dollars in a fund and said to the children of churches all over America that he would send them $10 if they would memorize the Ten Commandments and recite it to their pastor. How do I know this? About 75 kids at the church I was serving lined up to recite the Ten Commandments to me. It got a little redundant, to be totally honest with you, but right? But, but this guy throws a million dollars. He says it's that important. But see, given what we've talked about in this series, are they something that Christians need to follow? And I'm not talking about the murder one, obviously. You know, we all need to know that, right? Yeah. And, and it's a great question. And the answer to that question is yes, but not because they're the Ten Commandments. So should Christians follow the Ten Commandments? Yes, but not because they're the Ten Commandments. With the rest of our time together today, I want to explain why I say that. Okay, so now to get us going, I need to briefly reintroduce you to one of the most important figures in the history of our world. Uh, He was a first century church planter named Paul. And if you've ever read any of the New Testament, you've probably read something that Paul wrote. In fact, like of the 27 books in the New Testament, 13 of them are traditionally attributed to Paul. And he's a really fascinating dude, especially when you consider the fact that when we first meet him in the biblical text, he had a very different occupation. He wasn't so much a church planter, but he was more of a Christian hunter, Like seriously, when we first meet Paul, he was working as a Jewish religious leader and he had become convinced that followers of Jesus had manipulated the Old Testament in order to make it say something that he didn't believe that it said. And so consequently, he saw the mission and message of Jesus as both a dangerous perversion of what God intended and a great threat to the Jewish religious establishment. And so Paul went to Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of the Jewish religion at the time, and he was granted authority by the governing council there to arrest Jewish people who had placed their faith in Jesus. Like, can you imagine this? And in fact, in letters to early Christians, Paul actually confesses to being responsible for the execution of some early Jesus followers. Nonetheless... And in spite of all of that, God saw Paul for who he was, like the perfect person to translate the message of Jesus to the Roman world. In in fact, I think that one of the most compelling things about Paul's life is how dramatically his perspective on Christians shifted one afternoon when he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. For Paul, that changed everything. Everything in that moment, he was transformed from like an Old Testament law loving Jewish religious leader on a mission to destroy the church to literally the greatest evangelist this world has ever seen. Totally sold out to Jesus. So that's Paul. And what I want to do with the rest of our time today, and in order to eventually answer the question about a Christian's relationship to the Ten Commandments, I want to talk about three specific ways that Paul impacted the Bible. So if you're here and you're a note taker, dude, I got three points for you. It is a good day for the type A's here at Keystone Community Church. I'm just telling you. If you're online with your notebook, you're just like already spiking the pen. I can feel it. All right. So anyway, the first and most obvious way that Paul impacted the Bible, we've already said this, uh, he wrote some of it. Right? I mean, after becoming a Christian, Paul spends the rest of his life planting churches all over the Mediterranean rim. 
and writing letters back to those churches to encourage them as they sought to follow the way of Jesus. And as it turns out, providentially, 13 of those letters survived and were eventually included in the New Testament. And initially, these letters were copied and circulated. So they would be addressed to one particular city or a congregation within one particular city. But because the information was so valuable, it would be copied and sent to all the churches in the region. I mean, again, they were seen as so incredibly valuable initially. And then eventually, they were bound together with other early Christian writings and the Old Testament in a book that you and I call the Bible. So that's the first thing that we really need to know about how Paul impacted the Bible. He wrote some of it. The second way that Paul impacted the Bible is something we've already seen a few times in this series. Namely, that Paul explained the relationship between the sections of the Bible. In fact, if you've ever been confused about how the Old Testament and New Testament sort of work together, you should look to Paul. Because in those letters to early Jewish Christians, because they were the ones who would be experiencing the tension between the covenants, right? Paul repeatedly explained how followers of Jesus should view and use the Old Testament. And honestly, he was uniquely qualified to do that because of his background as an expert in the Old Testament law. He would have known it inside and out. And so consequently, he better than almost anyone could see the fundamental incompatibility between the old and new covenants. And that was a reality that he emphatically articulated in writing. Let me just show you one example to kind of show you how he would do that. It's taken from Paul's letter to early Jewish Christians living in the city of Rome who were struggling to understand their relationship uh, to both the Jewish law and as a follower of Jesus. So here's what Paul wrote to them. He said, but now, as in now that you've placed your faith in Jesus, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. You say, well, what law is Paul talking about? He's talking about the, the Old Testament law. We've been released from the Old Testament law so that we serve in the new way, he says, of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. In other words, Paul writes like, if someone has placed their faith in Jesus, they are no longer under any obligation to follow the imperatives of the old covenant law. In fact, and I love this, the, I nerded out this week on greekbible.com. If you ever want a good time, just check that out, greekbible.com. Anyway, um, good times for nerds among us. Yeah, anyway, the word translated old here can also be translated outdated or even obsolete. So like to Paul, Jesus' establishment of the new covenant had changed everything. And Paul had blistering clarity on that point as well as a, what a follower of, Je of Jesus' relationship to the old covenant law should look like. He knew that the old covenant wasn't something that could be blended with the new covenant. In fact, in fact, I would go this far. If Paul were there the day that you and I had been handed our first Bible... And he was like, here are some things you should know. I think he would tell us this. He would say, man, read the Old Testament for inspiration. Like those epic stories, right? That show us the heart of God towards people and towards the world. Like we talked about last week when we looked at Jonah. He says, but take your application from Jesus' new covenant command. Right? Inspiration because the Old Testament records well, how the people of ancient Israel struggled in their life and their mission and their calling. And yet how God never gave up on them. 
But Paul would also tell us not to look to the Old Testament law for application because the Old Testament law articulated the terms of a covenant between God and ancient Israel prior to the crucifixion of Jesus and not between God and people after the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, the good news, the gospel, is that for the last 2,000 years, there's been a new covenant that defined the terms of relationship between people and God. And the word that sort of summarizes the terms of that covenant is grace. And along with that grace, there was a new command which followers of Jesus are to follow. Okay, so that last sentence, that there's this new command that followers of Jesus are to follow, and we're not supposed to follow the Old Testament laws, but the new covenant command of Jesus, that raises a great question, because if you're sitting there going, okay, that sounds, that's good, it makes sense, but like, what, what was that new covenant command again? Because it seems like that's pretty important, right? And as it turns out, it is pretty important. And Jesus gave it to his first followers on the night he was betrayed by one of his closest friends. And here's kind of how it went down. Uh, after sharing a meal with them, Jesus said something that would have left them stunned. And if you've read the Bible like I have a bunch of times, it's easy to miss how charged this moment would have been. But here's what Jesus said to his disciples. Just this, a new command I give you. And you go, well, what's the big deal? But I'm telling you, Jesus' first followers, they would have been confused if not offended because from their perspective, only God could give new commands. But then I'm sure one of them had the thought race through their mind because this is what I would have been like. I was like, yeah, but only God can like heal the blind and raise the dead too. So we probably should keep listening and maybe take notes, right? Yeah. Anyway, as Jesus continued to speak, he gave them this new command that, and, and this is key, was never intended to be added to the 613 commands in the Old Testament. Instead, it was intended to replace all those previous commands and to function as nothing less than the defining ethic for the lives of the Jesus follower. Here's what Jesus says. A new command I give you, love one another. And they're thinking, that's not new. That's actually in the Old Covenant. Love one another. He said, no, no, no. There's more. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. In other words, Jesus looks at these, these disciples and he says, listen, I don't just want you to love as you've been loved by others. That's good. I don't even want you to love other people in the way you want them to love you. That's good too, but this is better. I want you to love every single person that you meet in the same way way that I have loved you. In other words, I want you to love everyone always. And that's actually the title for today's talk. Super proud of that I was this week, right? Everyone always. And then after giving them this command, less than 24 hours later, Jesus put on a demonstration of his sort of love that would take their breath away because it took his breath away. And I'm telling you, in that moment, his first followers would have understood the depths of self-sacrificial love to which they had been called. All that to say that the second way that Paul impacted the Bible, and this is huge, was by explaining the relationship between the old and the new covenants. Okay, that brings us to the third and perhaps most profound way that Paul impacted the Bible. And I'll phrase it like this. Uh, Paul explained how to apply Jesus' new covenant command in our lives. 
In other words, Paul wrote these letters to early Christians that were, were filled with like specific examples of how to live under Jesus' new covenant command. In fact, and I think this is worth pointing out, when you read Paul's instructions to early Christians, all the things he tells them to do and all the things he tells them to don't, thank you very much, right? He's not presenting them with new commands. Instead, he's providing them with specific applications of what it means to love other people in the same way that Jesus had loved them. Said more simply, every New Testament imperative is an application of Jesus' command to love everyone always. Let me repeat that. Every New Testament command or imperative is an application of Jesus' command to love everyone always as he loved them. And now just let me give you a few examples to show you how you might read the letters of Paul through this understanding. Uh, first, the first example I want to show you is from a letter written to early Jesus followers living in a city called Philippi. And to them, Paul wrote the following. He said, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then as he continues, Paul goes on to describe how Jesus came to serve and not to be served. He assumed the posture of a servant to all that he met. And then later in the same letter, Paul essentially says to these early Christians, if you want to be a God-honoring husband or wife or father or mother or son or boyfriend or girlfriend or employer or employee, then all you need to do is have the same mindset or mentality that Jesus did. In other words, you need to approach your relationships like Jesus approached his relationships. And you need to figure out what Jesus would do. And then you just need to do what Jesus would do. And as I was you know, sitting there this week just reflecting on this, I had this idea. Someone should make a bracelet to help us all remember this. And this is actually really timely because I had this, I mean, literally pulled the slide in. I got home this week and my wife had ordered like a 50 pack of what would Jesus do bracelets? Because apparently like the um, copyright expired and the wonderful friends in China got a hold of them. But anyway, I have like 75 million of these at my house now. So if any of y'all need one, you come on over. My wife's going to make sure you leave with one. But my boys are like all excited. They're like, dad, have you ever seen this before? I'm like, yes. Back when the dinosaurs roamed our land, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's a first example. Now, another example, this one is taken from Paul's letter to his protege or his Padawan learner, if you're a Star Wars fan. Uh, it's a young pastor named Timothy who was at the time serving as a pastor. Here's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, command those who are rich in this world to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And, and so just, just a question, um, do you know why Paul says Jesus' followers are supposed to be generous? Like, are they supposed to be generous because then if they give, then God will bless them? Or are they supposed to be generous so that God won't be mad at them? And, and honestly, those are the natural questions that we tend to ask when it comes to generosity and God's desire for us to be generous. But, but the answer as to why Jesus' followers should be generous is actually way simpler than that. Um, this is totally worth writing down. Not really. It's kind of a joke. You'll see it. And you're like, I don't need to write that down. I'll remember it right here. Followers of Jesus are supposed to be generous because it helps the person to whom they are generous. Isn't that profound? Yeah, right. Let me go over that again. Someone gives someone else something and it helps that person. 
it demonstrates the sort of love that Jesus modeled to that person. In other words, generosity is one of the practical ways that we can love other people like Jesus loved us. Okay, because I'm on a roll. I'm going to do one more because I was going to do two and I couldn't pick. So sorry, here you go, right? Uh, this last one is taken from Paul's letter to early Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Um, and just check out how he specifically encourages that group of Jesus followers. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk, and it can also, the Greek word there can also be translated gossip, Bible, or greekbible.com once again there. Uh, unwholesome talk or gossip come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So Paul's like, words are powerful, and if you're a Jesus follower, your words need to build others up and not tear them down. It's like, so the question behind that command, though, do you know why Paul says that Jesus followers shouldn't talk badly about others, right? Is it because it's in the Bible? Not to use unwholesome speech, and it is in there, obviously, but that's not the reason. See, as it turns out, the reason that Christians shouldn't use unwholesome talk or, or gossip is because, well, unwholesome talk and gossip hurt people. And it's kind of impossible to love someone like Jesus loved them and to use unwholesome talk about them at the same time. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that in the end, all of the Old Testament commands are really just examples of Jesus' command to love like he loved. And actually, if you want to grab a discussion guide as you're leaving today, on the back, there's another section from one of Paul's letters. And you can kind of go through and see this for yourself. Kind of like, okay, yeah, that's all kind of what love would have us do. If I'm going to love like Jesus loved um, so they are, they're all just examples of what it looks like to live into that command. And if you think about it, um, and, and I think this is pretty cool, God didn't offer examples for every situation that you and I are going to face because he didn't need to. Because if we're honest, we almost always know what it looks like to demonstrate sacrificial love to another person, even when we don't want to do it. We almost always know what it would look like to do it. And so um, as I was writing this week, I, I was getting to this point in my notes, and I kind of stopped back, and I always think, like, hey, if I'm sitting out there and I'm listening, what are my objections going to be? Because I'm totally the guy that has objections. And, and a fair objection that a few of you may have right now, especially if you grew up in church, would go something like this. Isn't this a bit too easy, right? Because, like, I mean, if you grew up and there were, like, a labyrinth of rules you're like, that just feels more religious-y, right? I mean, you're telling me like this is just like one thing. We do this one thing. We're following Jesus. I mean, isn't that a bit, isn't that a bit too easy? Like is Christianity supposed to be like some big perpetual love feast, right? I mean, that's weird. So if that's what you're thinking, I need you to consider something. And it goes like this. Jesus' new covenant command is less complicated, but it's also far more demanding. And here's why I say that. Uh, those of you who were raised in religion know that it's easy to find loopholes in religious rules that allow you not to do what you don't want to do. But it's almost impossible to find a loophole if the defining ethic of your life is to love others like Jesus loved you. And, and, and I'm telling you, like this for me is why the Christian faith can be so brilliant when you really follow Jesus, when you really live into this New Testament command, there really aren't shortcuts 
or workarounds. You just need to love like everyone always. And if we're honest, we almost always know what that means. Uh, there's one more piece I need to show you. Um, so check out what Jesus says right after giving his first followers this new covenant command. He says this, by this, by you living this way, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In, in other words, Jesus looks at his guys and he says, self-sacrificing love, a rhythm of demonstrating that in visible ways is what's going to distinguish you from people who aren't yet my followers. And that is incredible. If you think about it, Jesus stakes his reputation in the world on his followers' willingness to submit to this New Testament command. I also think it's important for us to note what Jesus didn't identify and designate as their defining feature. Like he didn't say to his guys, uh, you be known for the day on which you gather to worship. Or that you'll be known by the way you take communion or the way you practice baptism or the translation of the Bible that you prefer. Or even the causes that you're for or against. I mean, that's all fine. But, but Jesus looked at his guys and he said, listen, I want people to be able to identify you by the way you're loving other people. That you're loving people like I loved you. And I, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that apparently the old song was right. If you went to church camp, you're about to get nostalgic. You ready? Remember this one? And they'll know we are Christians by our love. It's been that way since the very beginning. And that brings me back to the question about the Ten Commandments. So, uh, you know, are Christians supposed to follow them even though they were given as a part of the Old Covenant? Because they were given as a part of the Old Covenant. And as I mentioned earlier, I think the answer to that question is yes, but not because they were given under the Old Covenant. I'm convinced that Christians are to follow the Ten Commandments because in the end, they're all examples of what it looks like to love like Jesus loved us. To love everyone always in the same way he loved us. Okay, so we're gonna, we'll pick it up there next week. Uh, but for now, if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand. And I'll close our time together in prayer. And uh, once again this week, if you're new around here, um, at the end of each service, there's an opportunity to meet with a volunteer. I uh, just want to share what's going on in your life or to pray over you. And we'd love to meet you under the screen to the left uh, right after I dismiss. But for the rest of us, let me, uh, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the brilliance of your son. Thank you for the brilliance of the new covenant command that cuts through all of the fog of religion and provides us with clear marching orders. We are to love like we are loved by you. So this week, as we go into our world, I pray that we would carry that mission, that calling, in the front of our minds, that with every interaction, um, we might demonstrate a little bit of the love of your son. And as we do, we pray that in small ways your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. For this morning, we thank you and we bless you and we love you and we desire to live for you. It's in the matchless name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to your friends. We'll see you next week.